The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. All right, well, let's, uh, let's, get, into, let's get into God's Word uh, right now. And um, we, we just very simply want to talk about Jesus today. Is that cool? Um, it, when it comes to Jesus, I think there's just a lot of twisting in the wind about him, though. If you think about, not so much in this room, but a lot of twisting in the wind outside in the culture about Jesus. And what I mean by that is that no other figure in world history has created uh, more discussion. Uh, no uh, figure in world history has created more controversy. Uh, no person in history has been studied more than Jesus. There's no uh, other person, again, in all of history who engenders such passionate, emotional reactions uh, to the very name and to his identity. Uh, more books have been written about him, more movies made, more conferences in his name, more academic papers, more debates, uh, more magazine features than about any other soul who has ever lived uh, by far. And all of it, all of it about answering simply one question, who exactly is Jesus Christ? Now, a defining moment occurs in the Gospels when Jesus, after having taught for some time, after having healed so many people about so many different things going on that would have pointed to his divinity, uh, Jesus finally asks the question of his closest followers, um, who do people say that I am? And secondly, who do you say that I am? And to Peter... Uh, the spokesman for the apostles and uh, one who was always willing to give an answer anyways, uh, said, you are the Christ of God. You're the anointed one or the Messiah of God. Now that, I think we would all admit, that's a very bold assertion. And one that we're going to look at today in some depth. And really with the hope that, and here's what we're aiming towards, with the hope that, uh, we're going to get to the place where every single one of us, no matter who we are, would have greater confidence in the identity of Jesus Christ, who he is, that we would add to our understanding of Jesus Christ. And then beyond that, if any are here and are not yet in a relationship with Christ, four people have gone through the waters of baptism here today telling us that there was a time when they were here and didn't know Christ. So the likelihood that there are people in this room who yet do not know Christ, but then by the end of this day, all of us, our resolve about Christ strengthened, and for some of us, a decision about Christ made. That's where we want to go today as we answer this question. So let's look at the text. We're in Luke, Luke's gospel, of course, uh, chapter 9, and this is verses 18 through 22. Let me read these, and then I'll pray. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old is risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day 
be raised. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we uh, know and understand that this book is the very word of life to us. And God, I pray that you would be bringing life to this room for some who are dead in their sins still, Father, I pray that life would come to them. The light of Jesus Christ would shine on them. And God, for all of us who continually are seeking to throw off the vestiges of death in our lives and to walk in the newness of life, God, I pray that your word would be life to all of us today and bring us to a greater understanding of who your son, Jesus Christ, really is and and together with all of the implications that that brings to our life. Father, bring about the change that can only happen through Jesus Christ. Help us to hear your word now as it's preached. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, who exactly is uh, Jesus Christ? Uh, Let's start with this, uh, who he isn't. That's a good place to start, right? Uh, Who he isn't. Notice verse 18 again. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. Let me pause there for a second. How many people like your head just kind of turned a little bit when you read that? Was he alone or were his disciples with him? Which which is it, correct? Now remember, uh, he had tried to get alone last week with his disciples. And then what happened? The crowds came, correct? The crowds came. And I think by alone here, it means that Jesus was praying alone uh, with his disciples. It was just the 13 of them, as opposed to all these crowds uh, showing up. Um, so he's, um, he's alone with them. And uh, he, dis- he decided this is the moment. I'm going to ask them. They've seen so much. They've heard all my teaching. They've seen the healings. They've seen people rise from the dead, the stilling of the storm, the feeding of the 5,000. Now's the moment where I'm going to press the question, who I am, who do they think I am? And in essence, what Jesus does is he takes a little bit of a public opinion poll. How many people don't like polls? You don't like polls? I can tell you didn't raise your hand because that was a poll, right? (laughs) Some people don't like polls. Uh, but Jesus is taking one here, verse 19, and they answered, who the crowds say that I am? And John the Baptist, that's a, one maybe possibility. I don't even know how that was a possibility since they were alive at the same time. Not logical, something like opinion polls, not often logical. The ones that frustrate me the most are the ones where the news, the news uh, uh, caster goes down to the Dunlop Street, you know, and he's got his microphone and his little camera out and he starts asking people their opinion about things. It's the most frustrating thing on the news every night. It's the most frustrating thing. Like, like, the, like the solution to the Middle East crisis is right down there on Dunlop Street, correct? <laughs> it says, ask somebody their opinion. Surely the answer is here in Barry to that. And anyways, a little frustrating. Doesn't even make any sense that it would be John the Baptist. But others say Elijah. Maybe that makes a little bit more sense, but not really. And, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen and so the poll results are in. Jesus, we're hearing various things about, he, about you. And again, they're only asking the crowd, the crowd that was kind of coming along with him. But if they'd asked the religious leaders, they didn't ask them. But if they'd asked them, uh, the results would have been more like, well, we think maybe he's a heretic. We don't like the kinds of things that he's teaching. Or maybe if they'd asked the Roman authorities, they would have said that he's a revolutionary. At the very least, he's a rabble rouser. And he's creating dissent among the people. 
So lots of different opinions and perspectives on Jesus Christ, and today it's no different. And if I could just focus in for a little bit on uh, people who say that they believe in Jesus, at least Jesus of a sort, those that we would call liberal theologians, and so people who might call themselves Christian, again of a sort, maybe mostly in the cultural sense of that, but who are uncomfortable with the more miraculous parts of who Jesus is, Uh, This might represent their viewpoint. This comes from John Ankerberg and John Weldon in a book called The Facts on False Views of Jesus. In liberal theology books, we find Jesus is portrayed in a diverse manner as a Jewish holy man, an occult magician and mystic, a personification of psychedelic mushroom cult. I have no idea what that is. Pretty sure I don't want to know. A homosexual, a twice married divorcee with three kids a wicked priest, a social cynic, a political revolutionary, and just about any other view that one might wish to take. Now that, that is what people believe about Jesus in society as, as a whole. It's not obviously what we would believe here in this room, and we can essentially break down all false views of Jesus into three categories, and we got some signs here that are going to help us out with this. Let's uh, start with this one, um, the historical Jesus. It's the first one right here, the historical uh, Jesus. And um, yes, uh, Jesus is, how many would agree Jesus is historical? In other words, he existed in history. Uh, but when we use the phrase historical Jesus, what we really mean by that is that um, is that he's only historical and he's nothing else. That he existed as a human being at a point in time in history. But no more than that. Now, among the options here, let me, there's a kind of a, a list of subcategories of historical Jesus. So um, that he was a good man. How many people have ever heard that? I believe Jesus was a good man. And sometimes in your conversations with people, that's what you'll hear. Uh, that he was a benevolent man. That he was uh, compassionate in many ways. And had a deep impact on the people that he served. Some would see him as a prophet for sure. That he did preach and people would not deny that. But that he was just a prophet or a preacher among prophets and preachers. Nothing really terribly special about him except that it it, it kind of blew up beyond what even he imagined it would be. So that we're still talking about him today. Um, Islam, by the way... um, Uh, You won't have any trouble getting uh, Muslim people to talk to you about Jesus, but they would stop short of believing he's the Savior for sure. Uh, They would believe, uh, though, that Jesus was a prophet. And so with all of the Muslim people that you might come into contact with, please understand that that's their perspective on Jesus, is that he is simply a prophet. Uh, Some uh, see him, of course, and I, I referred to it in the quote a few minutes ago, a married man, a family man. A McLean's Magazine reported... um, Uh, Just in April of uh, last year, I guess April 2014 issue, an article entitled The Gospel of Jesus' Wife, that Jesus was uh, the son of God and a husband. And apparently this this, uh, uh, papyrus has been found. A little fragment of a papyrus uh, has been found that has some words on it that kind of make it sound like, but they're only fractions of sentences and they're not complete sentences and They've pieced it together in some kind of a, a puzzle and, and are arguing that, um, that Jesus, of course, was married. And uh, that's uh, nothing new. And the Da Vinci Code and Dan Brown talked about that, of course, several years ago. And it's actually something that's existed for uh, millennia. 
Uh, others would believe, and I, this is included also under historical Jesus, that he was a realized man or an enlightened man. And both Buddhists and Hindus uh, would acknowledge that Jesus reached the highest levels of enlightenment. In other words, he, he's just a man, but uh, what Buddhists and Hindus are trying to achieve in their life through meditation and through various uh, things that they might do for their religion, uh, there was uh, the understanding that Jesus actually did all of that and became enlightened and uh, achieved the highest level of consciousness and became one with God at his death. Again, still others would see Jesus as a revolutionary, a politically motivated fanatic, someone with perhaps a Messiah complex, but not the Messiah. All of these would see Jesus as human and nothing more. That's the historical Jesus. So you understand if anybody uses that phrase, that's what you need to be hearing. That's what people are saying. And then secondly, this, um, who he isn't. Uh, Secondly, uh, he isn't uh, simply the mystical Jesus. Now, various uh, ideas here under mystical Jesus as well. Uh, not a human being, uh, but a spirit being. And uh, those who would hold this view would say that he only appeared while he was on earth. He only appeared to be human, but he wasn't actually human. Uh, Gnostics would believe this. Uh, secondly would be the uh, first created being. And if you've ever had a conversation with a Jehovah's Witness or you know anything about the ancient um, uh, understanding, the ancient teachings of Arius, uh, both would believe that he was uh, not eternal, not self-existent as God, uh, but that he was the first being ever created. Others would see him under this category. Others would see him as an angel, or as the Mormons would uh, believe, one of several sons of God. Obviously, that's um, not something that we believe. Um, United Pentecostals, not the Pentecostals that are down the road at Maple View or Highway, not those Pentecostals, but United Pentecostals uh, would believe that uh, Jesus is the Father uh, just manifested in human form, uh, that there is only a one God. We would certainly believe that, but there is no Trinity. Uh, This is called modalism. Uh, They make no distinction between the various persons of the Godhead. We'll talk more about that in a few moments. And um, that's the mystical Jesus, just a distortion and a twisting, a believing that he was spiritual, that he is, in some senses, God, uh, but a twisting and distorting of what we would believe from the word of God about all of this. And again, so important that we understand all of this because we do not all worship the same God. And though people might name the name of Jesus, their understanding that he is truly who we're going to see he is in a few moments is not necessarily the same. Just because the word Jesus is being used, just because someone says they worship God does not mean that they're in line in alignment with the word of God and what we would believe. So that's the historical Jesus, the mystical Jesus. And then finally, uh, this one, uh, the fictional Jesus. And there are certainly some, but I would say that it's probably a very small minority of people. Some who would believe that Jesus is a myth, or as some would like to say, that he's simply a legend. And that the story of Jesus really happened because of the telephone game. You, you remember the telephone game? It would be, if we had time, it would be fun to play it right now. 
and for me to whisper something, go all the way over here to Greg and whisper in Greg's ear over here and whisper something and have it go through all of the rows and then go all the way back to Ian at the back and say, hey, what exactly did Greg just say? Now, how many people have no confidence at all that the message would be the same from here to here? It, It would not be the same. And those who believe in the fictional Jesus... They would say that what we have today, the the, the understanding of Jesus that we have today is really just the telephone game happening generation after generation for two millennia and that the Jesus we have today is not, not at all true, just a legend, just a myth. Now, we don't believe for a second that Jesus is simply historical. We don't believe he's merely mystical. We don't believe he's at all fictional. But the reality is, whether you can lock it down in any one of these categories or not, we all have the temptation to make Jesus in our own image. We're all tempted and often fall into the temptation to craft a God that's palatable, that's comfortable, a God that we can live with. And so what you see happening here is something that even we as the followers of Jesus Christ can fall into at times. Where we don't fully want to acknowledge who Jesus Christ is. Especially his lordship in our lives. Or our need for him as a savior. And so we again don't want to be too hard on anyone who would fall into these categories. Because I find even with myself I can do that. And twist and distort Jesus to my own liking. Well, that's who he is, and so let's get down to who he is according to God's word and what we believe by faith, who who he really is. Verse 20, he had asked about the crowd's opinions, and then they said to him, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, notice, the Christ of God. Peter says, you're the Messiah. Literally, you're the anointed one of God. You're the one that we have been waiting for. All of our lives, all of Jewish history, ever since, going right back to the garden, when Adam messed up and the promise was made that one would come who would crush the serpent's head. They'd been waiting for that one to come ever since that very day. And as Peter says this, the Christ of God inherent in that declaration is everything that we know about Jesus. And I'm not saying for a second that as Peter made that declaration, there's every, every bit of evidence that he did not fully understand what he was saying. There was hopefulness in it. There was certain, there's certainly truth in it. But Peter even struggled with the truth of that in the days that would be to come. And all we could say is that Peter got the ball rolling. And so let's look at this now, who he really is, and not just historical but let's flip this sign around not just historical but actually jesus son of god jesus son of god now to this point in luke's gospel jesus has referred to himself sorry what did i say son of man messing that up jesus son of man to this point in luke's gospel jesus has referred to himself as the son of man four times already we see that in chapter five twice in chapter six and again in chapter seven And he does so again in chapter 9, verse 22. And the designation is a divine one. 
We, we might be tempted to look at this and see only his humanity, that Jesus is fully human, and that's a part of this. But don't miss the fact that when Jesus is saying that he is the Son of Man, he's making a direct reference to himself as God. In fact, uh, jot down this reference, uh, Daniel 7, uh, 13 and 14. This is in the apocalyptic section of Daniel's book where he's seeing future things, things that are still future for us. And Daniel writes this, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like, what does it say? A son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, a reference to God and was presented before him and to him was given notice only God would get this. This is the son of man. This is the Son of God. This is Jesus Christ. Daniel seeing a vision of the Christ coming before the ancient of days before the Father. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Now, this is meant to communicate as Daniel is looking at this, he's seeing this son of man. In other words, he's seeing God in human form coming before the throne. This is a human who is God. And as Jesus uses that phrase for himself, son of man, he's communicating his divine person his divinity he's communicating his divine mission in this world and yet still emphasizing the humility of becoming human to accomplish that mission it's both of these things fused into one what we're talking really here is about the incarnation of the uniqueness of god becoming flesh jesus as the god man 100 percent human 100 percent god Jesus, the son of man. That's who he is. Amen. I hope you believe that. And then, and then this secondly, not just mystical, but Jesus, this is where we come to son of God, Jesus, a son of God. Now, again, to this point in Luke's gospel, Jesus has been referred to as the son of God in the prophecy given by Gabriel to Mary in chapter one, by Simeon in chapter two. In chapter 4, it was a confrontation with demons who identified him as the son of God. And Jesus said, don't tell anybody. But they knew who he was. Of course they would. Jesus himself in chapter 4 as well referred to himself as the son of God. And toward the end of his earthly ministry, something we haven't gotten to yet in Luke's gospel, in chapter 22, verse 70, he's before the Sanhedrin, the religious council. This is at his, his arrest. He's been arrested. He's heading to the cross. And he's before these Jewish leaders and they ask him, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. You're saying that I am. I mean, it is actually a very direct answer, even though we would have preferred a yes, I am the son of God. It's very direct. And the reason why you know that is look at this. And they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. They knew exactly what he was saying. He was claiming without question to be the son of God. The time doesn't really allow us to, dive, to fully dive into all that the apostle Paul wrote or all that the apostle John wrote about the 
divinity of Jesus Christ, that he is the son of God. But sufficient to say this from Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9, for in him, speaking of Jesus, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Fully God and fully man. And by all of this, Jesus is revealing something not only about himself, but about the nature of God. and Who God is. Something that had not previously been understood to this point. Namely, that God is three in one. That God is a triune God. That he is Trinity. And I think that we struggle with this because we have these finite minds. And whenever we try to understand the Trinity, we're trying to get into the mind of God who is infinite and eternal. And this mystery of the Trinity is something that is rooted, in fact, in the mystery of God. And yet he wants us to understand it. So I found this graphic to be uh, helpful, and maybe you'll find this helpful as well. There's really uh, seven uh, statements here that are illustrated, and it is the Trinity summarized for us. It tells us everything that we need to know about the Trinity. Seven statements. There is only one God. That's statement one. There is only one God. And sometimes those of us who believe in the Trinity have been accused of believing that there are three gods. And that is not true. We do not believe in three gods. There is only one God. Uh, Here's six more statements. The Father is God. The Son is God. And the Holy Spirit is God. All three members of the Trinity, all three persons, to use that word, of the Trinity, are God. And then three more statements that further clarify that the Father is not the Son... The Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. Seven statements that tell us what we need to know about the Trinity. And this is a major battleground, and knowing and understanding this is so critical for us. Because relatively few people, as I said earlier, relatively few people believe that Jesus was fictional. Most people believe he existed, that he was historical. But to acknowledge his divinity is something else entirely. If we only acknowledge his historicity, that he existed, then I can do whatever I want with him. But as soon as I acknowledge that he is part of the triune God, as soon as I acknowledge that he is divine in and of his own right, then I have some obligations to listen to what he said and to obey his commands. And so challenges to his divinity came early and often, and there are all kinds of challenges to his divinity today, but please understand, that started. What we're seeing about Jesus and all the debates we're having about him today, is, it's nothing new. And in fact, if I could take you just back to one, in, um, how many people like history? You like history? How many people are like falling asleep right now because I said the word history? Yeah. I understand. I understand. I love it myself, but in the fourth century in the year 325, a council was called together called the Council of Nicaea. And uh, that council was called together to deal with, precisely to deal with matters pertaining to the doctrine of Jesus Christ, to what they believed about him because errors were beginning to creep in, namely errors concerning his divinity. And so the council got together 
to strongly affirm the deity and eternality of Jesus Christ, to define the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as three co-equal and co-eternal persons within one Godhead. And uh, as we conclude this message in a few moments, we're actually going to stand and say the Nicene Creed together as an affirmation of what we believe about Jesus Christ. See, he is and he must be the Son of God. And then this, uh, finally, uh, not fictional, uh, but Jesus, uh, Savior, Jesus, Savior of the world. Now, to this point, we have a Jesus, Son of Man, a Jesus, Son of God, and we could, if you prefer, and I know some people prefer it, why didn't you keep the Son theme going? And we could have. I wanted this to be very clear what we were talking about, but we could just as easily have put Son of Adam there. And in one sense, if you look at Luke's genealogy in chapter 3, you know that Jesus was a son of Adam, but, but, but we're all sons of Adam. And Jesus was one of the sons of Adam. But if you go further into a study of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we find out that Jesus was, in fact, the second Adam or the last Adam to come. And Jesus came as the son of Adam to correct the problem that Adam created by allowing sin to enter into this world, a problem that we all inherit from Adam. The solution that we need, of course, is Jesus Christ himself. And so coming as the second Adam or the last Adam, he solves the problem that Adam created. And so I could have put son of Adam here. I could, could also have put son of David here. Because as the son of David in the line of King David of Israel, the greatest of Israel's kings, in the line of David, he inherited the covenant promises that God had made to David to establish his throne for ever. Jesus fulfilled that, of course, and I love this in Psalm 89, 3 and 4. It really makes the point. I have made a covenant with my chosen one. This is God speaking. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. And Jesus Christ in the line of David is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. That God's throne will be forever. Now, in both cases, Jesus, son of Adam, Jesus, son of David, in both cases, it points to this one thing, Jesus, savior of the world. And so for clarity's sake, that's what we put. He is the anointed, the king of Israel. And everything about Jesus drives to this very point that he would be our savior. Luke 19.10 says that the son of man came to seek and save the lost. And without this intervention, we are entirely, as human beings, we are entirely without hope in this world. We would have no possibility of being reconciled to our God. We would spend eternity, eternity separated from our God and the pain and anguish, the darkness and the loneliness of what that means. Those who believe that Jesus is a myth or merely historical or not fully human are indeed without hope in this world. They can't take advantage of Jesus, Savior of the world, because they've not acknowledged him as son of man and son of God, as every one of us needs to. And that really is why all of this matters so much. Why does it matter as we try to lock down who exactly is Jesus Christ, who he isn't, who he is? Why does it matter? 
verses 21 and 22, he says to them right after Peter, right after he makes this acknowledgement that you are the Christ of God, he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Why? You would think that this would be the kind of news that should be shouted from the housetops. And the reality is it will someday, but not right now because the people were not ready to receive this message. They still had false notions of who Jesus was. There was more work to be done. He strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying the Son of Man. He's going to give them the whole plan here. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, the percentage possibility that the 12 apostles understood what Jesus said, the percentage possibility of them understanding is zero. He gives them all. Would you not agree that reading this as I have just read it makes it pretty clear that he's going to die? Does it not also make it very clear that he's not going to stay dead? I mean, we're reading back on this going, it seems so clear. He told them the whole story. And yet when we get to all of this happening, they seem to be entirely flipped out about it. And they don't get it. And after he dies, it seems like they don't have any sense that he's actually going to be raised from the dead. Though, does it not seem clear to you that he said he was going to rise from the dead? It seems pretty clear to me. Now, part of it is, Maybe they were just confused by the whole thing because they still had it in their mind that he was going to be this political leader, that it was going to be similar to the rest of Israeli history where, where a great king came to power and, and, and knocked down their enemies and the, the throne would be established again and, and the, the Roman shackles would be thrown off. That's what they had in their minds. And Jesus is telling his disciples here that he would be, notice the very first thing he says, the son of man must suffer suffer many things. And he's introducing to them the very real notion that he would be a suffering savior. That his life would actually be required of him to accomplish the mission. That there would be no coup d'etat. There would be no throwing the Romans out. There would be no reestablishing of the Davidic throne in the immediate There would be no independent Israel. Jesus had no political and no nationalistic motives whatsoever. He was heading to the cross. It would be the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. It would be his resurrection. That would be the core of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It would be that that would give us the opportunity to come into a faith relationship with him. To be part of of the spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of God that he was proclaiming. You see, and that's why this matters. Because we have this gospel in our own hearts to transform our lives, to give us hope of eternity and beyond that, to share with others who are so desperately in need of hearing the same thing. You cannot believe in merely a historical Jesus You cannot believe in merely a mystical Jesus with all of its various nuances. And you certainly cannot believe in a fictional Jesus. 
There are many people out there who would say, it doesn't really matter what we believe about Jesus. What's important is his teaching that we just live by that. And that actually is so false on its face that what he taught us is wrapped up in who he is. And that what he taught us is absolutely meaningless apart from who he is, how he lived his life, and that he gave his life as a sacrifice for us and was raised on the third day. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. Is We really need to lock down why this matters. First Corinthians 15, verse 12. In essence, this is the same discussion. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, if he's just the historical Jesus, if he's just a mystical Jesus then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. It's it's just all meaningless. It has no purpose. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If only in this life, listen, listen to this, because this is for us right now. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. What a pathetic lot we are to be here today, to be singing to Jesus and listening to things about Jesus and teaching about Jesus and telling people to be like Jesus and all this stuff about Jesus. If he was not raised, if he is not exactly who we are saying he is, then we are a pitiful people. But in fact, verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ is risen. Amen? Christ is who he said he is. He is the son of man. He is the son of God. And he is the savior of the world. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.